Okay, I'm glad you're here. I got a, a beautiful um, text from my friend David, and I'll just read it to you. Rabbi Nachman says, every, every light needs a vessel. God's great light, in order to shine into us, needs a vessel. The name of that vessel is joy. God's infinite light needs infinite vessels. So, so you see something very beautiful here, which is the idea that the ultimate, the ultimate vessel for God's light is joy. Um, and there's sort of like, a, every once in a while, I, I, I think of this phrase, the, the physics of spirituality. And there's a certain physics to this. And let me just give you another example of this. The Torah itself is bigger than the entire world. So given that, that we know that the Torah existed before the world existed. The Torah is it's bigger than this world. In fact, every single mitzvah is bigger than this world. That's one of the reasons, metaphysically speaking, why it is that all of our reward is stored up for the next world. Because literally, for every single mitzvah that you do, the world is not large enough to fit the reward for your mitzvah into this world. Because just in terms of dimensionality, you, you, you need to actually access a higher dimension in order to receive that's what, that which is waiting for you. So, so the question is, if the Torah is bigger than this world, how was the Torah given at Mount Sinai? So the Rebbe's asked this question. In other words, if the Torah is bigger than the world itself, how did God fit the Torah into this world? And so do you know what the answer is? He gave us the Torah on Shabbos. Because Shabbos is a day without borders. So because Shabbos has this infinite dimension to it, God could fit the infinite into the infinite. That, that, that correlates. So now we return back to this original teaching from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, which is what kind of kli, kli means a vessel. By the way, kli is a very beautiful word in, in Hebrew. It's, it's spelled chaf lamid yud, and it's an acrostic which stands for kohen levi Yisrael. In other words, when there's unity among the Jewish people, that creates a vessel to hold God's light. But God's light, we know, is infinite. So, so what kind of vessel can hold that light? And the answer is joy. Because joy is incredibly expansive. And joy has no... The whole idea of joy is that you're not seeing the world with this very sort of literal, narrow focus through just the prism of everything that you don't have, Right? It's just all of a sudden, everything becomes expensive when you're in a state of joy. I've heard it discussed that, you know, imagine, imagine that, uh, you know, you have some sort of like rivalry with someone or there's some sort of bad feeling between you and someone else. And, um, you know, ordinarily speaking, if you saw that person, you'd be like a little bit upset. They put you in a bad mood. Now imagine you have an only daughter. And this is the wedding celebration of your only daughter. You're in like an amazing state of happiness. And then this person walks into the room. You'd say, please sit down, sit down. You know, you'd pour him a drink, whatever it is. Like, because you're just seeing the world in a completely different way. So, so when it comes to God's light, God's light needs an infinite vessel and joy is that vessel because it creates this, this level of expansiveness. By the way, this is why in 
in, in Jewish thought, and, and the Hasidim really emphasize this aspect, joy is a precondition to prophecy. You know, this is why, by the way, Yitzchak Avinu, before he gives the blessing over, as it turns out, to Yitzchak, although in the beginning he's going to give it to Esav, right? This is why he says to him, go and get me my favorite food. Right? Why would, why would Yitzchak, who's like, you know, one of the spiritual foundations of the universe, before he's going to hand over the keys to heaven and earth, say, you know something, I'm a little hungry, you want to go? Go and like kill something for me. You know what I mean? It, it makes no sense. The idea is that he wanted to put himself in this state of extreme simcha, great joy. And then from that place, he'd be able to channel like the, the, the highest blessings down into the world. We know that the prophets, before they went into their state of prophecy, they would always have music playing and things like that, because that's an expansive thing. And we know that in terms of just getting through life, this is why joy is so important, because it puts you in a state of expansiveness, and then you're not sort of thrown by little petty things. You know, you know one of the words I, I remember from, from the, 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 the years that I was privileged to be around Reb Shlomo Karlovach, one, one of the words that he would use a lot of times with just a, a level of, um, I don't know, angst, I guess, would maybe be one word to describe it, is he would, when he would decry people's low spiritual states at, at that moment, he would always use the word pettiness. He would say, it's so petty, so petty. And, and he would say the word and he would infuse it with a lot of emotion. So, so the, the, the antidote to pettiness, the opposite of pettiness, is, is joy because it's expansive when the other thing just leads to tunnel vision. Okay. So now, with this as a background, let's look into the opening words of this week's Parsha. Parsha's Tetzaveh. And it says, Va'ata titzave. And this is really remarkable because from the beginning of Moshe's appearance in the Torah, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, all the way to the end of the Torah, Moshe's name is mentioned in every single parsha except this one. Here, he's alluded to, but he's only alluded to. Va'ata means you, and you is referring to Moshe Rabbeinu. Va'ata, and you are titzave, and you are to command. Okay. Now, what's so interesting about this is that on one level, it's referring to Moshe Rabbeinu, but it's not mentioning Moshe Rabbeinu's name by name. As such, it's really one of the headquarters to hiddenness, right? Because Moshe's name is hidden here. And as the Parsha develops, the next topic that the Parsha is going to go on to, actually, is the oil for the menorah. So what's the whole idea of the menorah? It's lighting everything up, right? So there's this dynamic between hiddenness and revelation. Not only that, but the next thing the Torah discusses is the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel. And what's clothing all about? Clothing is that which hides you. So again, it's talking about hiddenness again. Now, I want to go further into these words, but first, I want to make one more connection. Because we said that this is an allusion to Moshe Rabbeinu. 
It's a classic teaching from the Vilna Gon. Amazing. Just to, again, another in an infinite series of um, uh, examples of how deep the Torah is. You see, the words va'ata titzaveh, and you are to command, this idea that Moshe's name is not written in this parsha, and yet it's referred to. So how do we see it referred to? So the Vilna Gon points out that if you take the gematria of Moshe Rabbeinu's name, but not in the normal way, it's a special type of gematria called gematria melui, where you're actually able to quantify the inside of the name. You see, in all things we have the aspect of the hidden and the aspect of the revealed. Can you imagine if you were able to quantify the aspect of the hidden, the inside aspect, right? So let me just tell you how this form of gematria works, okay? What you do is each letter, in addition to being a letter, you can spell out the name of the letter. So mem, could just be written as a mem, but if you actually wanted to spell out the name of the letter mem, you would write mem mem. That's how you spell the name of the letter. So imagine you spell the names of each of the letters in the word. So mem would be mem mem, shin would be shin yud nun, and hey would be hey aleph. Okay? Now you've got the outside and the inside. The outside letters of that sequence of letters that I just mentioned would be Mem Shud He, Mem Shin He, Moshe. But what about the inside letters? The other Mem of Mem, right? The Yud and the Nun of Shin. The He, the Aleph of He. What if you took all the inside letters and added those up? Then you'd be able to put a number to the inside of the word. Okay, this is how Gematria Malui works. And the number that it adds up to is 101. Now, why is that remarkable? Because in this Parsha, there are 101 verses. So in other words, it's true Moshe's name is not mentioned, but the whole inside number of this Parsha is the inside number of Moshe's name. An unbelievable insight from the Vilna Gon. So again, the... the Let's take the right lesson from that, and there are many, 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 but just the simplest thing to see is to appreciate how many levels the Torah is working on simultaneously. Now let's get back to that. I mentioned that one of the main topics of this week's Parsha is the clothing that the high priest wore. And, and now I want to tell you something else, which I think is amazing. These words, the opening words of the Torah, va'ata titzaveh, if you take those two words, the gematria of that is the same gematria as the word breishis. Right? The very first word of the entire Torah, with beginnings. With beginnings. Talking about the creation of the entire world. So what's the connection between ata, va'ata titzaveh and breishis? So since we're talking about clothes, let's zero in on that. We know that after Adam and Chava, after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, God clothed them. He put clothes on them, but that was, that was because the inside and the outside got all mixed up. Now listen to this. You see, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, before they ate, they were naked, 
but there was no level of self-consciousness to their nakedness. And I think that the reason why that's the case was because they understood that the most intimate, special part of themselves was actually their souls, was actually that which was inside of them, right? But what happened was, after they ate from the tree of knowledge, this blanket of materiality and physicality became perceived by them in the world where the most prominent feature about themselves at that point seemed to be their exterior, the material aspect, not the spiritual aspect. And so since now this, this blanket of materiality became perceived in the world in a much more heightened way, all of a sudden they became aware of each other's physicality and their own physicality, and now they had to be covered. So everything got turned upside down in terms of their perception of the world. So God, as a chesed, as a kindness, clothed them. But the clothing that God gave to them was actually a repercussion. It was a consequence of something that they had done wrong. Now, look at how, how this correlates. This week's Parsha, Va'ata Titzave, as it starts, which we just said was the numerical equivalent of Breshis, of the beginning, opening narrative of creation, also deals with clothes. But the clothing that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel, wore each aspect of the garments was a different fixing for a different thing that the Jewish people had done wrong. One garment atoned for murder. Another garment atoned for um, uh, speech, improper speech. And so it was with each of the garments. So now look how this parsha correlates with Breshis. That one gets clothing for things that we did wrong. This one gets clothing to fix every problem that comes upon us. Bookends. Bookends. I'll tell you something else. When I found out the, that Va'ata Titzave added up to Breshis, I needed to know, okay, what else adds up to Breshis, right? It's number 913, okay? So, very intriguingly, if you look in, uh, in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, Parshas, uh, or chapter 34, uh, verse 5, you see this word, tzotzavav. Tzotzav. I'm sorry. Okay, and it appears a couple of times. And uh, what does it mean? It's I saw a couple of different English translations for it, but it, it's talking about the borders of Israel. And one of the translations is it means end. So can you imagine the word for breishis, which means beginning, has the same gematria as the word end. And I think that the reason for that is, or one reason is, because every end is a beginning. There, there is, in God's infinite universe, no such thing as an end. It's just a different portal to begin in a different direction. Right? So, and then again, intriguingly, we're talking about Breshis, which is the beginning of everything, 
and yet it correlates with the actual borders of Israel. In other words, what is the end of the beginning? We know that when Mashiach comes, the entire world is going to have the status of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. So these borders are going to completely expand, right? So, so just uh, something that deserves a lot more thought, but just, um, just a few things on that topic. Okay, so now let's get back to this idea of light and vessels, the hidden and the revealed. So we know with Breshis, Breshis is, is the revelation of everything. That's the creation of the world, right? And it's the same gematria of Ve'ata uh, Titzaveh, which is the hiddenness of Moshe, right? So that's the hidden and the revealed operating simultaneously. Breshis the reveal, the same gematria as Ve'ata Titzaveh, which is the hidden. The hidden and the revealed manifesting themselves simultaneously. And this is the dynamic that we all live in. Because on the one hand, if you look around, where's God? I don't, I don't see God. And then, at the same time, if you look around, the only thing I see is God. So, so both of these dynamics exist simultaneously. You know, I'll tell you a story. How, how, how two things can, how two people can be doing the same action. And yet, they can be coming from two completely different places, you know? I had dinner at someone's house one time, many years ago. It was on a Friday night. Really one of the most special people I know. And uh, there's a mitzvah to, to, to walk a guest to the door. And it's kind of funny because just as, as a side note, I didn't grow up in a, in a Torah-observant home, but it, it was a very Jewish home. But my parents were you know, very, um, very concerned and very, very, you know, very, very good at, at getting, giving over proper behavior, what they felt was menschlichkeit, you know, like how to be a mensch, like, you know, just you try to do the right thing as best you can. And so certainly one of the things that I had drummed into my head from the time I was a child was you walk a guest to the door. And so when I started learning some Torah, I found out that that's actually a mitzvah. And it, what, what, what intrigues me about that, and it's, a, it's actually a very big mitzvah, what intrigues me about that so much is that even people who, who just don't grow up quote-unquote religious, whatever that means, but with a knowledge of the observance, if, they, if, if you grow up in a Jewish home, you're being given over so many mitzvahs and you don't even realize it. You know, so, so there's so much Torah, even if it's not being called Torah, there's so much Torah being handed down through the generations that it's, it's a very beautiful thing just to show you how much an aspect of just the, the, the fabric of our culture even, the, the, the Torah mitzvot are. So, so you have this concept of, of, of escorting someone. And, and as much as it's nice to walk someone to the door, it's even better if you could walk them Dalit Amos, which is about 10 feet outside the door. So in other words, you begin their journey home with them. Okay, that's an extra level. That's even better. So this person I was having dinner with, he walks me to the door. You know, I was with my family. Then he walks us Dalit Amos. Then 
we get to the corner of the block, he's still walking with us, right? Then we get another block, he's still walking with us. I'm like thinking, what's going on? You know, this is, this is really something, you know? And, um, and then here's the reason why I'm telling you this story. At one point, he's still walking. And I thought, is he really, is he going to walk us all the way home? And then do I have to walk him all the way home? You know, I was like wondering, like, where is this going exactly? But anyway, here's the point. At one point, while he's walking and walking and walking, I looked down at the cement. And I saw my feet, and I saw his feet. And, and I, I was just kind of just looking, just as we were walking. My feet, his feet, my feet, his feet. And then it hit me. I'm just walking home. He's doing this mitzvah of Leviah. My footsteps are just like finite. Every step he's taking is going to live on forever because he's getting heavenly reward for every single step that he's taking. And I'm thinking on the outside, it looks exactly the same. But on the inside, the, the internal hidden dynamics of what's going on right now, it's like from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe. So this is the whole aspect of the hidden and the revealed. Breshis, absolutely revealed. You can see the world. The absolute hiddenness. You know, I'll tell you another correlation between Breshis and Atta. Titzava. Titzava means to command. If you actually take the t away and you put a m there, if you put a mem there, titzava spells the word mitzvah with a mem. Okay? So, by the way, that's another, that's another hint to Moshe because this Parsha is read virtually every single year during the Yurtzite, during the, the day, Zion Adar, the seventh of the month of Adar, that Moshe left the world. So, Moshe, so to speak, is God, right? He's leaving the world. And he's also absent from the Parsha. So another, another correlation. But, but let's look at sort of like the fabric of creation right now. We know, so, so you should command. Titzava is, is the same word as mitzvah. So, so basically, you... You are to do mitzvahs, if you want to loosely translate this phrase, is the same gematria as breishis, creation. So, so what, what do we know about creation? That, that God took his will for the world, right? And he shaped it into the world itself. In other words, God's expectations for the world, or as, as Reb Shlomo puts it so beautiful, God's dreams for the world, that when you do mitzvahs, when you do mitzvahs, that you're dreaming God's dreams, right? And you're praying God's prayers, okay? So weaved into breishis are the mitzvahs. That's the gematria, the atah, titzaveh, and breishis. Because weaved into breishis itself, into creation itself, are the mitzvot. Because God created the world out of the mitzvot. They say that the reason why we have an arm is so we can do the mitzvah to fill it, right? So what comes first, right? God gives us homes, places to live, because we've got to do the mitzvah of hanging a mezuzah, right? So it's all how you look at things. Okay. And how we look at each other. 
You see, every single person has the aspect of the hidden and the revealed too. You see, your body is a vessel. And your soul, that's, that's the light that's inside the vessel. And you see, the challenge is like this. Normally speaking, a vessel covers the contents of what's inside. See, like if you have a can of something, right? You don't know what's inside. That's why you need a label. So, so this is coming back now to Rabbi Nachman's teaching. That the greatest vessel for God's light is joy. And I want to give the following explanation for this teaching now. You see, if someone has a frown on their face, right? And someone's just in a bad mood all the time. The vessel that is their body is completely concealing the contents inside the person, which is the light of God. I, I heard it put this, it this way one time, and it made a big impression on me, which is that, um, you know, we have, in Pirkei Avos, they talk about how you're supposed to have a, um, a, a panum yafes, a, a, a nice face, meaning that if, if you can do it, the, if, if the default setting, so to speak, of your face could be a smile, that's, that's, that's a good place to be. If you sort of lead with a smile, you know? And by the way, there are wonderful things that come from that, which is that people who you don't interact with at all, who just walk by you, that smile just kind of triggers something in their brain. And so there's actually a great domino effect that happens just from, from smiling, or at least not frowning, right? Because frowning can have the opposite effect. But I heard it put like this, that your face, all of our faces, actually is part of the public domain. Meaning to say, as much as you want to say, this is my face, if I want to frown, if I want to growl, whatever it is, that's my business, right? But this is coming from a different perspective. This is saying that your face is actually public property. And a frown is actually like graffiti on a billboard. Like you have no right to deface public property. Can you imagine? Like that's a, like a very different way of looking at it. So one of the consequences of sort of like kind of looking forbidding on a regular basis, I mean, we all have our good days and bad days, you know, none of us is perfect, but I'm just talking about as a general approach to life, you know. So one of the negative consequences is that your vessel then conceals the light because the light of Hashem, your soul, can't really shine through in the same way. Normally speaking, a vessel conceals the contents. So the challenge is, how can you be a vessel that actually reveals the contents? Because there is such a thing. You can have a glass jar, right? With a glass jar, you can see exactly what's inside. So how do you be a glass jar? How do you turn your body, your, your essence, into a glass jar? And the answer is, Simcha, joy. Through joy, you reveal 
not conceal what's inside of you. And then it can shine through. So then you have what I'd like to call the revealed aspect and the more revealed aspect, right? Instead of concealing and revealing, you're revealing and then, you know, pointing the way to even higher levels of revelation. By the way, I heard Rabbi Tatz and he learned it out in a little bit of an intricate way, so I'll just leave out the steps leading up to the conclusion here. But the conclusion is very beautiful. He said that the definition of Jewish beauty doesn't have to do anything with physicality. It's the ability for God's light to shine through a person to the extent that you can make yourself into a window in which people can perceive God's light. That's called Jewish beauty. So, so that's, that's, that's striking too. Okay. <clears throat> so now, the question is, how do we relate to each other? Because the entire world is sort of balanced on this dynamic between that which is revealed and that which is concealed. You see, the realest thing in the entire world is God. That's the foundation for everything. But it just depends on your focus. Like, what are you, what are you focusing on? So, so, with this in mind, when you look at another person, are you looking at their body or are you looking at their soul? Okay, we obviously notice each other's appearances. And, and that's a mitzvah too, to take care of your appearance. It says that a Talmud Chacham someone who's like a, a sage of Torah, if he has a stain on his shirt, he's chayiv misa. He's liable to the death penalty because he's representing Torah in a, in a very sort of improper way at that point. So one has to be mindful of their appearance. They can't just, you know, decide to gain 300 pounds and then blame you for not being spiritual enough to see their essence, right? So, so a person has to maintain themselves and be respectful of their appearance, but at the same time, that's not the essence. It's not the essence. I'm just saying that, you know, it's not that we disregard physicality. That's, that's not it. By the way, the halacha is, before a man and a woman can become married, they have to at least see each other before the chuppah. Okay, because there has to be that, that aspect of pre-approval in terms of one's appearance on some level. It doesn't have to be the, the be-all and end-all, but, but there has to be a, at least a, a level of acceptance on, on, on that score. By the way, um, just a, a quirk in Jewish law that you actually don't have to attend your own wedding. <laughs> You can send a shaliach, a messenger, to marry someone on your behalf. And actually, you want to hear something interesting? The Talmud says, you know what the definition of a bad messenger is? Right? Someone who you send to marry someone for you, and he marries her himself. <laughs> that is considered a bad messenger. <laughs> okay? So, but anyway... Before you send a, a representative to, to get married for you, you have to have at least seen the person, okay? 
So anyway, we're just talking about different dynamics between the inside and the outside, right? Okay. So, so the question is, how do you relate to another person? What, 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 do you prime, what, what is the primary focus that you see? Okay? So, so um, I, I want to share with you a teaching, and then we'll probably wrap it up with this. Um, something that I, just always intrigues me. This idea that, you know, if, if I were to kind of fill out my driver's license form and it says height, right? I'd put down my height, whatever it is. And um, so, by the way, I'll tell you, it, if you have young kids, you should tell them to drink milk. My, 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 my mother, especially, was very, very strong on three glasses of milk a day. And the only reason why I mention that is because um, both my parents were about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, something like that. And I'm almost 6'2", and my brother's like more than 6'4". And so we always thought that that was because we, my mother was so insistent that we drink milk growing up. Because it's got calcium in it, gives you. And apparently, the Dutch have a name for this called milk bones. That if you drink a lot of milk, you you get taller. So anyway, that aside. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't like the taste of milk growing up, and and so my mother would always put um, coffee in my milk from the time I was a little kid, and it was always the end of the pot. So. I was the only kid, I think, who would drink milk in the morning and then had to pick out the coffee grinds from like my, my, my tongue, you know? It was like, you know, it was like an old man at like four, you know? It's like, anyway, so it goes. Um, so, so you look at another person and how tall are they? Do, and, and the answer is, you could say, well, they end where the top of their head ends, right? And that's how most of us look at each other. But the reality is, in terms of the dynamics of the soul, there are three parts of the soul that are inside of you and two that are outside of you. So the parts inside of you are the nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama. The nefesh is sort of like the baseline aspect of the soul. That's what animates the organs and keeps the blood flowing. Okay, that's called the, the, the most animalistic side of the soul because it just kind of allows you to, to, to function and move around. And then the levels of the soul become progressively higher. And then outside of you, you have what's called the Chaya and the Yechida. Yechid, the Yechida has the word Echad in it, or Yachid, which means oneness, which is that all of the souls eventually all merge into a place of oneness, which is this idea that spiritually speaking, we're all absolutely connected with each other because the roots of our soul all merge into one Amazing bit of oneness, okay? But that is all the way at the top of heaven. That's at the place called the Kisei Akavid, the throne of glory. So in other words, and just spiritually speaking, before we just finish the point, you should know that there's this inside aspect to your soul and then this outside aspect to your soul. It's called the Or Hamakif, the outside life, the outside light, the surrounding light. And by the way, the woman, in terms of male-female dynamics, the woman is compared to the outside light, to the surrounding light. And that's why the woman is associated with the home, because the home is that which surrounds you, right? And that's why it's the beautiful custom 
among the Jewish people that when a man and a woman get married, that a woman buys the man his talus for him. Because the talus is that garment which surrounds you. That's, that's the orhamakif. That's the outside light. And then I'll tell you something else, which is that it says that after Shabbos, really you're not supposed to fold your talus on Shabbos so much because there are creases and it's, it kind of impinges on the law of Shabbos and things like this. You have to go into it more if you want the details on this. So you kind of just roll it up and stick it in your talus bag, right? But after Shabbos, it says that one of the very first things that a man is supposed to do is to fold his talus. And it says that it's actually, and this is actually a, a fairly extreme word in halacha, sakana, sakana means a danger. And it actually says that it's a sakana not to do it. Because I guess it's this whole aspect of the outside light, and most people don't know that, by the way. So if, uh, if, if you're married to someone who isn't folding his talus fast enough, don't, don't get mad, you know, just share the teaching with them, you know. <laughs> This is not well known, but, but I, I'm very intrigued by this, and I'd like to learn more about this. But I, the, what I can understand about it is because it represents some aspect of shalom bias. So, and in fact, and I, I, I just heard this, I, I don't have any source for this, so I can't, um, I can't really recommend it, but uh, I just thought it was an interesting teaching, and since we're on the subject, I'll just mention it, that, that I think... By, in some quarters, but again, I don't have any sources for this. In some quarters, they say that it's a segula. It's a sort of like a, a special blessing if a woman wants to get married to, to buy a talus, to buy a talus for her chasm. But I can tell you as a man, you know, you have certain tastes in taluses, so you might pick the wrong one. All right. But you know, that reminds me of a story. So I'll tell you this. Someone... Someone called me up and said, listen, there's this couple that's going to get married, right? Will you meet with the parents, with the parents of the chassan and kala, the, the bride and groom? And just kind of go over what, what the wedding ceremony is. And I was like, uh, okay. So I didn't know the bride or the groom, much less the parents of the bride and the groom. And they came over to the house and I remember it was like a little bit late at night and we sat at the kitchen table and it was sort of like this conference. And I said, okay, here's what's got to go on. Basically, you, and I just told him the different customs that I'm familiar with. You know, you have to buy uh, a watch, right? Like, like if you can afford a gold watch, that's very nice. You have to buy a watch. This is the parents of the bride for the groom and the parents of the, um, of the, of the uh, groom the, the mother should go shopping for candlesticks with the, with the bride, right? And then you get a talus, and then that's, and then and we went over various things and everything like that. And then they were like on board, and they were like, okay, good, everything good, and everything like that. And then I found out like about, I don't know, months later, that the parents were actually opposed to their kids getting married in a, in, a, in a Torah fashion. That they didn't want that ceremony. And I had no idea that that's what we were supposed to be discussing. <laughs> but
but that they were so sort of empowered and like inspired by like all the different things that were going to go on and what they had to do in their various tasks that at the end of the thing they were like okay this is what we're doing and it went very smoothly and everyone was very happy you know in terms of this watch by the way i think the idea is you know like the the idea that the the the, the brides i'm just speculating here but that the brides Parents are buying a watch for the groom. You know, I, if you think about it, there's a lot of wisdom to that. It's sort of like, you know, we'll now have a reasonable level of um, confidence that he's going to show up on time and be able to say, okay, it's time to leave work because my wife is waiting for me or whatever it is, like a degree of responsibility and, and a chrys, you know? Like how to structure the day in order to accommodate this my wife, who's now in my life, which is a different schedule. You know, so there's all sorts of, all sorts of depth to all these different things. Um, but I want to finish making the point about the levels of the soul and how you look at each other, what you see when you look at each other, whether you're interacting with the other person's soul, if that's the most prominent aspect, or if it's just the, just the body, just the vessel of the other person, Right? So, so if all of our souls are so expansive that they go all the way up to the throne of glory, each one of us are enormous. Each one of us are giants. And it's another way of relating to each other. And then it, it, it becomes easier or even like obvious to have like a, a degree of respect and kavod for each other, honor for each other. Because... You're a giant relating to another giant, right? Okay. Now, I just want to conclude with this story. It was something, it was a, I, I had heard it, it's a TED Talk, and it's called My Stroke of Insight, and it's about, um, you can look it up, it's about this um, woman who is uh, uh, at, at, at Harvard uh, Medical School on the faculty there, and she was studying the dynamics of how, how, how brains work and how brains don't work. Her, her brother was a schizophrenic, she says. And so she was very intrigued with what goes right, what goes wrong in terms of just the way the brain works. And, um, and what happened was, because she's such an expert about the brain, it happened that she had a stroke. And, and she was so knowledgeable that she was actually able to analyze her stroke as she was having it. Like, what was going on in terms of her brain as she was having this stroke? So, very intriguing to hear her talk about it, especially since it sounded like it was a very big stroke, and she's 100% now, so she, she had a full recovery and is, is lecturing about it. So, one of the things, you know, I've always seen pictures of the, of the brain, um, but always inside of the skull. So, it's sort of like this, um, this sort of semicircle, if you will, right? Um, or a half a melon, if you will, whatever it is. And I've always heard um, uh, references to the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, but I've never actually seen a brain outside of this skull. Um, I've seen it in a jar, but again, it's a small jar. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is that she was holding a brain, a human brain, and she opened up her hands, and you saw that the brain just opened like a book would open, like half on this side, half on that side. And they're connected on the bottom. But I never realized 
how the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain are two entirely different entities. Right? Again, they're connected on the bottom. But if you just were to put it on a table, it would open like a book opening in half. So she went on to say that the right side of the brain is in touch with the most universal concepts of everything, like the oneness of everything. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because it absolutely 100% syncs with what the Torah has been saying about the construct of human beings and about the world forever. And the left side of the brain is much more particularistic, much more sort of individual oriented. So it's sort of like there's the, the oneness of everything. And then there's sort of like, I got to be here in 15 minutes, right? And this is my name and this is my address. So it's all of that information, okay? And then the two work together. And some people are more right-brained and some people are more left-brained, okay? Just in terms of whatever, the, every person's different. So what happened was during her stroke, she actually felt and experienced the left side of her brain shutting down, which is the more individual right, like distinguishing aspects. And what happened was she became sort of like liberated, if you will, on, on, on some level, and just sort of was like swimming in the expansiveness and the oneness of the universe. And she didn't put it, she didn't use these words, but this is very much what she was saying. She was very much enjoying her stroke, right, as, 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 as crazy as that sounds, right? And she found herself at a certain point where she just felt completely liberated and enjoying it and everything like that. But then she became in touch with the fact that she was still alive. And she understood that she had a responsibility to continue to be alive. And now here's the reason why I'm telling you the story. Because she said these words and it just like was like, yeah, this is the Torah, you know. She then said, when she realized that she had to go back into her body or regain that, that type of consciousness, she said, well, but I don't know how to do it because I'm so big. And how am I, who am so big, supposed to fit back into that tiny body? Right? So she was seeing reality from the perspective of like who each and every one of us really is, right? This aspect of the surrounding light of the two aspects of the soul which go all the way up to the throne of glory, that was her perspective because the body aspect, the particular aspect of her, the left-brained aspect of her had been shut down. So the bottom line is like this. The whole world, the whole world has two very fundamental ingredients, the hidden and the revealed. And they're working together all the time. The hidden and the revealed are working together all the time. But it happens to be that the hidden aspects of the universe, of reality, are the most fundamental aspects of the universe and of us individually and of everything.
And the question is, what choice are we going to make in terms of living our lives and making priorities in terms of what are we going to invest in the most? You see, the whole quote-unquote enlightened, enlightened way to go through life, where everything is just one plus one equals two. You know, as Rip Shlomo said one time, the world doesn't work on a one plus one equals two way. That's why reality is so mysterious and often so confounding, because it's, it's way deeper than one plus one equals two. And the reason why is because the hidden aspects of reality are the most fundamental aspects of reality. And so it goes back to us, how we choose to live our lives. Okay. Have a good one. <laughs> That's class. Class. Yeah.